Acts 5 and from verse 17. Acts 5 and verse 17. Okay, so this past week, these kind of these seven days since Easter Sunday, they really have been a quite fascinating days for Christianity in this country, haven't they, since Easter Sunday? Now, first of all, we had uh, David Cameron's rather kind of bizarre uh, comments. Remember, we see what he said. He said that Christians in this country uh, should be more evangelical about their faith. David Cameron said that. Okay, so you had that. And then perhaps more importantly, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe more alarmingly, we had that sort of very high-level, very organized response to what David Cameron said. Did you see that? We had uh, this open letter that was written to the Daily Telegraph from like uh, 50 or more high-profile celebrities and politicians and uh, organizations. And they wrote to the Daily Telegraph and they're all sort of decrying this idea that, that Britain is a Christian country, you know. They were absolutely repulsed at the thought. How could David Cameron think that? How could he possibly say such a thing? See, in their, their eyes, any notion of the influence of Christianity in a country like ours it should be rejected at all costs. Now, it's surely, come on, it's surely true that when we are confronted by things like that, these sorts of things, that we can find that sort of opposition um, unsettling, can't we? You know, when we see faces that are so well known to us, people maybe we even look up to, all these famous names, and they're all coming out with a sort of vitriolic hostility towards the Christian faith. Isn't it true that we can find that unsettling a wee bit? It's a bit disturbing. But isn't it then all the more amazing that in God's providence, look at it, in God's perfect timing, what do we have here? We come face to face this morning with a passage of scripture, and what does it deal with? Is a passage of scripture that deals with very high level, very organized opposition to the Christian faith. It's cracking. It is absolutely fantastic. And the hope is this morning that as we study these things, these verses here, that what's going to happen is that we are able to leave the church at the end of the service encouraged. That we're encouraged. Because what we find here is how our God, the God Most High, he acts in a time of opposition to advance his gospel. And we, we're going to look at these verses, and we're going, to see how the, we're going to see the ways in which, the manner in which God furthers the cause of his kingdom. He furthers the cause of Christ, even when... Even when society, even when the prevailing culture is just dead against it, so set in its opposition to Jesus Christ. So hopefully we leave the place today encouraged. Now, with all that said, I suggest that we get to Scripture. We look to God's Word, 
And let's consider together a first element that we see here. Please consider this. When the church is opposed, God advances his gospel through angelic assistance. I'll say it again, just that we've got it. When the church, when Christians are opposed, God advances his gospel, and he does that, how? Through angelic assistance. That's the first thing we're going to look at. So I suggest that we um, go back to Jerusalem in the first century. So let's do that. As we do that, what we find is that the high priest here, and and his associates, they're engaged in this sort of hostile um, opposition to the fledgling New Testament church. And the opposition that we're reading off here, it doesn't kind of manifest itself in a sort of John Snow type uh, letter to a national newspaper or anything like that, does it? I mean, the, the opposition we read off here is much more pointed. It's much more aggressive, isn't it? Because you see what happens that The high priest, he acts to to have the apostles grabbed and then he has them thrown in jail. So, surely the question we've got to be asking is, why is he doing that? Why has, why does the high priest have the apostles captured and thrown in jail? Well, surely we see that it's about power, isn't it? I mean, it is. It's all about power. And do you remember a few weeks ago we looked at the fact that the New Testament church was really seeing some incredible things happening. I mean, they were miraculously healing people and the church was growing and we've seen all these people converted. So do you see how the high priest is feeling about that? I mean, he's not happy. He and his associates are worried about their own popularity, I guess. That's part of it. And surely we could say that they are they are worried about their waning influence over the people of society. I think simply put, look what scripture says. I mean, simply put, we can see that the high priest, his Sadducees, these guys, they were jealous of the church, jealous of the church. And so they go out, they grab the apostles and they chuck them in jail. That's what we see. But what happens next is the most remarkable thing, isn't it? Really? I mean, Luke tells us of this sort of (laughs) staggering, sort of miraculous, supernatural event here. And he kind of tells us in this just sort of nonchalant, nonchalant way, doesn't he? Do you see it in verse 19, if your Bibles are open? I mean, this is the first century in the Middle East. So the disciples are in a dark, dingy dungeon here right and then what happens all of a sudden in the middle of the night an angel an angel appears in their midst okay imagine waking up to that and the angel appears and what does he do he opens the door to the jail and he releases, he frees these, these, these captured apostles. I mean, this is incredible stuff, isn't it? But I guess, I guess what we've got to do here is we've got to ask why. I mean, it's a miraculous event. The appearance of an angel. Why has God sent the angel now? 
Well, here what's happening is that God is delivering to the church a message. Do you see that? In sending an angel at this point, God is effectively saying to his people, he's saying, yeah, guys, here's how it is. You are, you have been opposed. And guess what? You're going to be opposed again. But in sending an angel here, he is saying, remember, I am God. In sending an angel, God is saying, as we teach our kids, he's got the whole world in his hands. That he can control all of these circumstances, all of these events. God in sending an angel saying to his church, guys, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. You see, it's true, isn't it, that when we are opposed for our faith, let's say it's by our friends and people we work with, that can happen. Opposed because we're Christians. Or if we're opposed as we are currently by culture or by society, then we can very often feel like the weaker party. Can't we? Isn't that true? That we feel as though the persecutors of Christianity are the guys that are in the ascendancy, especially over the last couple of weeks, we see these letters and the response, we can feel that those guys, the ones who are opposing Christianity, these guys are the ones who wield all the power, right? That's how we feel. But do you not see in these verses here how wrong that is? Do you see that we are the people who, has the, who have the creator of the universe on our side. I mean, we, we worry about ridicule, don't we? Work or whatever. We worry about Terry Pratchett right? letter to the Daily Telegraph. But come on, look at Acts chapter 5. On our side, we have a God who orchestrates even the, the, the heavenly realms for the advance of his church. So I'll tell you this, the hope is this morning that we, all of us in here, all the Christians in here, have an experience like Elisha's servant had in 2 Kings chapter 6. Do you know what I'm referring to? Do you remember that? Elisha prays to God and he prays that his servant would be aware of the spiritual realities around him. And then Elisha's servant he looks up and he sees on the hillside, he sees these hillsides are full suddenly of chariots and they're full of horses and they are all on fire. They are all ablaze, filled with angels who are fighting on his side. Friends, let's not forget in, in the mission of church to reach the world with the good news of the gospel, guess what? We have God. The creator of heaven and earth on our side. We have absolutely nothing to worry about when it comes to opposition. Because our God is so mighty that for us, for his gospel, he can use even the very angels themselves. Isn't that great? So we see the advance of the gospel through angelic assistance. Here's a second thing for us to ponder just now. When the church is opposed, 
God advances his gospel through the obedience of his church. When the church is opposed, when we suffer persecution, God furthers the cause of Jesus Christ, and he does it through the obedience of you and me, his church. Okay. So let's think about what happens next in Acts chapter 5. So these guys, these apostles, the 12 of them, they've been arrested, haven't they? And then, uh, miraculously, they have been released by by the angel. But then early the next morning, it's very, very early the next morning, what we find is that these guys are re arrested and then they are made to stand trial before... It's a real sort of courtroom scene, if you like. They're made to stand trial before the Sanhedrin. And when we go through the details of that trial, yes, we see how um, determined the authorities were to oppose Christianity. We see that. I mean, that's obvious. But in the trial, we also see how resolute and determined these apostles were. The church was to continue to speak about Jesus, regardless of what was coming their way. And In the verses, in this section, there's a theme that emerges, and it's a theme that I just want to, just for a moment or two, consider with you. And it's this. We see here the necessity of obedience for the people of God when we are persecuted. The necessity of obedience. And this is a theme, it's it's prominent here, it's a theme that appears here in a couple of ways. Okay, this theme of obedience. So follow me in this. First of all, we see it in where the apostles were re-arrested. Did you notice that? Can you see the location? Do you see where they were, these, these apostles? Do you see where they were when they were re-arrested? It's in verse 25. The apostles were re-arrested, we're told, in the temple courts. So they're in the temple courts. So surely we've got to wonder, right, guys... You've just been released from jail and you know that all the religious authorities are after you. Why are you not sort of fleeing at the hills? Why have you gone back to the temple courts? It seems a fairly bizarre place to be. Does it? Well, perhaps not. Because look, see, why are they in the temple courts? They're in the temple courts because see when that angel appeared out of nowhere in that jail cell, The angel didn't just appear, wake them up and sort of dangle some keys in front of these apostles and then just open the door and sort of usher them out. And that's not what the angel does. The angel also speaks. The angel commands these apostles. He basically says, guys, get back out there. Okay, you've been opposed. But the angel says, get to the temple courts. Get back out there. And start teaching people about Jesus Christ. And do you see what happens? Guess what happens? The apostles hear this from the angel and they go, they they leave the jail straight away. They go, even though they know people are chasing them, even though people are after them, they go to the temple court. So we see obedience, this theme of obedience, in the very location where they are being arrested. Fine. But we also see this theme of obedience in what the apostles say in the courtroom drama and what they say in this trial before the Sanhedrin. 
Now, we all know, don't we, because we have talked about similar things like this in, in church before in the sermon. But we know it also because I'm sure lots of us have friends who are lawyers or solicitors or barristers. We know that when a lawyer has to make a case in a courtroom, that what's important is not just the kind of points that he makes in defense of his client. I mean, obviously, that is kind of crucial. But what is also important in a courtroom is the way in which the case and his defense of a client is constructed and put together, right? We know that. That's pretty obvious. And what we see in Acts 5, when these apostles are giving their testimony, is a very, very carefully constructed case. It is a case that includes an inclusio of obedience. That means that it begins, this defense of themselves, this case, this testimony they're giving, it begins talking about obedience. It ends talking about obedience. Do you see that? Verse 29, Peter's speaking. You know, they're accused and they're spoken against. Peter gives his testimony. Verse 29, he starts speaking about obedience to God. Then verse 32, he's ending it. You know, he's bringing it all to a conclusion, this testimony, his defense. What does he say? He talks again. The Holy Spirit is a gift to those who obey God. So I wonder, do you see what we have here in Acts 5? We've got a very clear message that when believers like you and me, when we face pressure or ridicule, maybe even persecution for our faith, that we've got to remain fixed upon God's command to keep witnessing to Jesus Christ. That even if man tells us to desist, and get this, it sounds perhaps controversial, that even if we have personal, institutional, governmental commands to stop speaking about Jesus Christ, do we see that what stands above those things, that what supersedes absolutely everything is God's great commission for us to go and make disciples to all nations. Because you see, yeah, it's true that God is going to use the miraculous to advance the gospel, but what Scripture is also so fundamentally clear on is that he is also going to use ordinary heads. Ordinary people like you and me, living in obedience, holding out his word of truth, and he's going to use us saying to a culture of antagonism, hang on, we've been told to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. So we, what does it say? We must obey God rather than man. We must hold to that. We must obey God rather than man. So in opposition, God's works through the the, the supernatural. He does it through our obedience. And then thirdly, when the church is opposed, God advances his gospel through the working of providence. The working of providence. Now, I don't know what... I don't know some of you. Some of you are visiting the church. um, And I don't know what what circles some of you move in. I don't know if you have 
friends who are sort of ardent, uh, militant atheists, you know, like the, the, some of the names that were affixed to this letter, to the, the telegram. But if you do have friends like that, you will know firsthand, I'm sure, uh, how ferocious and how fierce uh, some militant atheists can be. But even if we think about them, that is nothing compared to what we've got in, in these verses here, the fury that is on display in Acts chapter 5. Because I tell you that, see when the apostles speak up against the Sanhedrin and they remain committed to the Christian faith, these guys are raging about it, aren't they? I mean, they are absolutely incensed by the apostles. And I want you to see that they were so angry that they wanted to kill them. They wanted to put the apostles to death. But then if we follow the, this quite closely, do you see what happens? One man stands up in Sanhedrin, this guy Gamaliel, a member of the Sanhedrin. He speaks to the jury, if you like. He speaks to his fellow, fellow Sadducees or his fellow Sanhedrin and he suggests a different route. Do you see what he says? Gabriel, uh, Gamaliel cites, not Gabriel, sorry, Gabriel. Gamaliel cites two previous uprisings. And these are uprisings that have petered out when the leaders died. So I wonder, do you see what Gamaliel is saying to his peers? He's saying, look guys, in Gamaliel's eyes, Jesus is dead. Why would we kill these boys? Why would we kill them? You know, their leader is dead, so their, if their movement is not of God, it's going to come to nothing. If it is of God, we are just fighting against God. We have no reason at all to kill these people. And do you see how it ends? Do you see that point it gets to in verse 40? I mean, it's a staggeringly important comment for the future of the church. Because it says that Gamaliel's speech persuaded them. So the apostles, they saw their death sentence quashed and they walked free. Now, I would ask you to watch that you don't make a mistake there. Like... When you're reading that, don't mistake Gamaliel for some sort of rogue, undercover Christian who's kind of somehow managed to infiltrate his way onto the Sanhedrin. Because there isn't any suggestion in the text there that that's what he is. I mean, Gamaliel's a Pharisee. That's who he is. And he's a well, you know, he's a well-respected bloke. And he's, he was the teacher of, of Paul, and, you know, he's wise and, you know, a great, great guy, I'm sure. Not a Christian. Not a member of the church here. And so because of that, I wonder, do you see, the, do you see what we've got here? Do you see the, the great wonder of what we have here? In times of persecution, God is not just orchestrating the heavenly realms for the preservation of his church. God is actually moving the hearts of unregenerate man for the advance of the gospel. Heaven and earth. It's incredible. And that is an amazing thing. But I guess we shouldn't be all that surprised by it, because I think 
throughout history, we've seen the same thing, haven't we? We've seen God move incredibly influential men, guys who profess no faith necessarily in Jesus Christ. And he's moved them so that their purposes suddenly, out of the blue, perfectly align with him. Now we saw that last year. We looked at the book of Ezra. I remember. I wonder if you can remember what we've got in the British Museum down the road. We've got the Cyrus Cylinder. The beginning of Ezra tells us of Cyrus making this wonderful great decree. You know, an ungodly man like Cyrus. And he decrees that all people of Israel can return to the land and they can rebuild their temple. It's fantastic. An ungodly man. We see it in the Bible. We see it in church history. Henry VIII, you know, an ungodly man in many ways. And yet he secures the church, the Protestant church in this country, for the sake of annulling a marriage. Ungodly men but yet used, moved by God. God is so utterly in control of events that he moves his creatures of heaven, that he uses his creatures of earth for the advance of his work. So I wonder if you're in a situation where you have come here this morning and you've faced opposition from other people over the past few days because of your faith. I wonder if you've come here because you are worried about this opposition of what David Cameron has said. Again, are you seeing here that you have no need to worry about these things at all? Do you see it? God moved Gamaliel. He convinced the Sanhedrin And the disciples were able to walk free and preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll read you a verse. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord will stand. The purpose of the Lord will stand. We've seen that in a society opposed to Christianity, God supports his church many ways. Intervention of miracles, obedience of his people, his providence over man. I want to close with a fourth thing. Very short fourth thought. Please follow me on this. Because this is the tough one. When the church is opposed, God advances his gospel through the suffering of his people. God advances his gospel through the suffering of his people. There's a chance, I think, that we could miss an important detail in Acts 5. Because we could get to the end of this chapter and we could find ourselves, as Christians, really reveling in the triumphant note that it sounds. Because the disciples are, they get through this trip, don't they? And they get through all that persecution and they are freed. And it's wonderful and they're out and preaching the good news and we can look at that and we can sing and be delighted and rejoice in God but we can miss a very important thing that happens to the apostles before they are released do you see that again it's verse 40 do you see what happens to them we are told before they were released that they were 
flogged. These men were flogged. Now I know, because some of you told me that you've been to the cinema and you've seen 12 Years a Slave. I know, because some of you have told me that you've also gone to see Django Unchained too. Um, films that are sort of renowned for some of their graphic scenes of violence, aren't they? Well, what those particularly difficult scenes in those films are trying to convey is the reality of what our 12 apostles in this passage face and go through before the Sanhedrin. These men were flogged. And we don't think about it. I mean, they go through what was called 40 lashes minus one. I'm not going to go into details about that. But they were whipped across the back in a manner, in a punishment that sometimes led to the death of the people that underwent it. They were flogged. Now the question is, why mention it? What is so important about the fact that they were flogged? Well, friends, this is important because what we see here is that God uses even that. God uses even this horrific ordeal in opposition to advance his gospel. He uses this. Now, think about it. The disciples leave the Sanhedrin and you see the frame of mind and frame of heart that they're in. They go through all that flogging and they leave the place. What does it say? They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering in such a way for the name of God. They go through this opposition, they go through this suffering, and they leave it, and they are just all the more resolute. They are all the more determined to preach because of what's happened. Preach the good news of Jesus Christ. God uses their suffering, their distress, to increase their passion for the good news. And really that's what we've got to zoom in here. Zoom in on, because I... I um, I don't want you to leave this place this morning thinking that the message is the church is going to be opposed, but it's okay because God's got it and everything's going to be cool. And everything's going to be easy. Because that is not the message of Acts chapter 5. The message of Acts chapter 5 is that we are going to be opposed, but the opposition is hard. And that it is going to involve Christian suffering. But I also want you to see quite clearly that if we respond correctly to it, that God is going to use our sin in opposition. He's going to use that for the glory of his great name. Isn't that marvellous? And so we end with this. We, we close with this. And I do urge you to hear it and take it with you. We should be encouraged. That's what we started out with. We should be encouraged today. And we should be encouraged because irrespective of all the opposition and all the ridicule and all the persecution of man, the good news, hear this, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, it is irrepressibly advancing through all the nations of the world. Irrepressibly advancing. So that New Testament map of God's saving grace. It begins here in Jerusalem 
for that map picture it, it's going to spread. The good news of the grace of the gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem. It's going to go out into the Middle East. Then it's going to go out into Asia, and it's going to go out into Africa, and it's going to go out into to, to Europe, and it's going to go to America, and it's going to go beyond that. And that there is nothing in this world that can halt the progress of God's saving intent. There is nothing. He is using all of heaven, and he's using all of earth, and he's using all of his church to, to gather up for him undeserving sinners, and he is using all of that and his word to stand them righteous in Jesus Christ, and nothing, not even a letter to the Daily Telegraph, can stand in God's way. Nothing. And we leave Acts 5 and look at the scene. The apostles, right enough, they are going out day by day, door by door, and they are proclaiming the grace of God. I tell you, let us go and do likewise with the words the apostles must surely have been thinking as they walked out of that Sanhedrin ringing in our ears. What do you think they were thinking? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray.